we all love the underdog. We flock to movies where the nerd gets the cheerleader at the end of the movie. They make millions. We all root for the lower seed in the sports tournament to knock off the higher seed. And we all have a soft spot in our heart for the person in the story that comes up from humble origins and makes it in a world that was against them at every turn. I'm guessing that some of your favorite films and some of your favorite stories are about the underdog. It's just that pervasive in the way we tell stories. We root for Frodo to make it through a treacherous quest to throw the ring of power into the heart of Mount Doom. We're on the edge of our seats and we believe that Daniel LaRusso can win the Tri-Valley Karate Tournament. And who can forget the movie Rudy? To prove my point about our love for underdog stories, I was a freshman in college and my music theory professor, yes, music theory professor, required that we go see this movie to the point that we had to not only tell him we went, we had to bring him a ticket stub. Now, this will be a throwback here. It was a second-run theater, so it was only a dollar to get in, so he could justify making us go. Yes, children, a dollar to get into a movie. So we were there. We were watching Rudy, and if you've seen the movie, Rudy gets in at the, on the, towards the last play of the game, He gets through. He sacks the quarterback. Well, in this movie theater, I kid you not, one of the strangest things I've ever experienced, everybody in the theater applauds when he sacked the quarterback. Applause right there in the theater. Well, of course it happened. When you think about it, the whole movie was playing on our desire to see the underdog win. The whole story was building up to that point. And when it happened, the emotions of the audience had to go somewhere. And so it came out in applause. And I'm not sure who we were applauding for, the film projector, the screen, I don't know. But we were applauding in a movie theater because we were so happy that the little guy won. Well, in our passage today, we get a little bit of a sense of an underdog story here. As we saw a couple weeks back, the covenant line has been promised by God to go through Jacob. Now this was not normal. In their time, the child that received the blessing and the majority of the inheritance was the eldest child. And so we would naturally feel those underdog feelings towards poor Jacob. But as we have seen already, it's difficult to have those feelings towards Jacob because he's a bit of a scoundrel. He began his life tugging at his brother's heel, and we learned that this meant he was always going to be trying to take what wasn't his. He wanted to be the firstborn so bad he was grabbing at Esau's heel, and he would deceive, and he would work things around to be the one who received the blessing. We saw Jacob trick Esau into giving up his birthright, and we know that Jacob is the one to whom the promise will go. God has uttered these words. But he isn't the firstborn. And so we feel this idea, oh, we want Jacob to win. But there's also some tension in this story. It's hard to get behind Jacob. He's a deceiver. It's difficult to want him to succeed. And so as we dig into this story this morning, we're going to break it down into three sections as we take this big chunk of text and try to understand it and apply it to our lives. The first thing we're going to see 
is that we're nearing the end of the life of Isaac, or at least he perceives it to be that way. Age is getting the best of him. He can't see, and so he wants to bless his eldest son. Now, we've previously seen that Isaac loved Esau because he gets him the wild game that he desires. And so he asks Esau to hunt for him, and then he will give him the blessing. Isaac wants a full belly. That's where, uh, that's his love language, for lack of a better way of saying it. And we're going to see that come through here in this text. Secondly, we find that Rebekah and Jacob conspire to acquire the blessing for Jacob. Once again, we see that Jacob is a scoundrel. He and his mother deceive their father to receive the blessing. And in the process, Jacob becomes the one on whom the promise of the covenant rests. And finally, we will see that this causes discord in the family. Now, this is a no-brainer, right? Esau has what is, right, Esau has what is rightfully him snatched from him by the deception of his twin brother. And this is a story of betrayal and deception And Esau rightfully is angered by what has transpired. And so as we start out this morning, we have a lot of text to get through, but our first point is only going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. And Maya, I am out of control up here, so if you could just follow along as best as possible, thank you. Uh, I'm not out of control, I'm I'm under control, I'm sorry. (laughs) This isn't working. All right. We've got a lot of verses, like I said. So, after looking at the blessing of God upon Isaac last week, we saw confirmation that Isaac is the child of the promise. He is the one on whom the promise of God rests. But now we're fast-forwarding. We're moving forward in the story from these interactions that Isaac had with this Philistine king to the end of his life. Now, that's, that's quite a jump. Now, as I've mentioned many times already, Isaac's story feels so short. How much time did we spend in Genesis with this anticipation of Isaac is coming, he's going to be born, Abraham and Sarah are going to have him, he's the child of the promise. And then we get to Isaac, and he's hardly getting any time in the story. But here we are, we're jumping to the end of his life, and we find that the story is now being passed on to Jacob and Esau. And so what's going to happen how is the story of redemption going to unfold? That's what, we're, that's what we're looking for here. Will the promise of God continue? And so we find Isaac thinking that he isn't going to be around much longer, and so he calls Esau in. And Now we have to remember that when we've interacted with Esau and Isaac before, we've seen that Isaac loves Esau. I mean, he can fill his belly with the game that he loves, and so he is the favorite son. And so Isaac, in his old age, plans to bless Esau, and he connects it with a meal. Now, this shouldn't be all that much of a surprise for us. This shouldn't be a shock. Because so often in the Bible, when there is a covenant blessing happening, there is a meal. Now, we have an easy example that we can just go not too far back in the book of Genesis to remember. Remember when Abraham had that run-in with Melchizedek. What did Melchizedek do? He gave a covenant blessing to Abraham, but he brought bread and he bought wine. And I'll make it even easier to understand for us something that we can relate to. When we think of the idea of a covenant, when we remember a covenant from God, what do we do? We have a meal right here. And we are, what are we doing? We're having a covenant renewal of what God has done. Covenant blessings and meals are deeply connected in Scripture. But we run into something interesting here before this covenant meal can even take place. 
Isaac is going to bestow the covenant blessing on Esau. Now, as readers of the text of Genesis, we know that Esau is disqualified from being the one who bears the covenant blessing. And there's three reasons for that. The first is the most important. God has divinely ordained that the younger will be served by the older. God has stated before the men were even born that Jacob will be the child of the promise. And that is, that's all it takes. If we're doing strikes here, I have three points here on this. That's three strikes by itself. If God ordains it, it's done. But we'll go to the other two. The second reason we know that Esau isn't worthy of being the child of the promise is that he despised his birthright. He sold it away from Jacob for some stew. For some stew. Does he care about the blessings? Does he care about the family? That's what we're meant to feel here. He, he doesn't even care about it. And then lastly, the third strike. When we finished up chapter 26 last week, we saw that Esau found for himself a wife from among the Hittites. He's intermarried with the Canaanites. And by doing that, he puts the covenant line in jeopardy. As readers of the text, we're, we're to feel that Isaac is off base here. Like, why would he bless Esau? He, God has said he's leaving and he's intermarrying with the Canaanites. Why would Isaac bless him? And we haven't been given these details, these things about Esau's life, because Moses was trying to fill the lines in here. Boy, I got to get, so, like I said a couple weeks ago, Moses wasn't sitting there saying, I have to have so many words to my publisher by Tuesday. Let's throw in these strange details. No, Moses wants us to understand that what Esau is doing is putting the covenant promise in jeopardy. That's what we're meant to feel, that Esau is not the one who's going to be able to accomplish this. And now we find that Isaac is going to bless Esau. He doesn't care. What is going to happen? And the details that were given about Isaac and, and this blessing, let us know that he doesn't care about the prophetic word delivered to Rebekah about Jacob. It feels as though that once again, Isaac has a favorite son, and he wants to bless his favorite son. That's what he wants. He wants his belly filled, and he wants to bless his favorite son. He wants those two things, and that's it. So as we move on to our second point, and, see the plan, and we see the plan that Rebekah hatches as we look at verses 5 through 10 of chapter 27. Now, as we land in this part of the story, it would be nice if we saw that Rebekah had good motives here. It would be great if the text told us that she was grieved that Isaac was being disobedient to the command of the Lord, and so she did all these things to preserve the covenant line. And so we could therefore find Rebekah to be a sympathetic character but we don't get any sense of her having pure motives here. She doesn't go in and plead with Isaac to do the right thing and obey the word of the Lord. We don't find her laboring over this decision to deceive Isaac at all. Instead, she just sets her course to deceive her husband so that her favorite child can receive the blessing. Isaac wants his favorite child to do it. Rebecca wants her favorite child. Let's Let's collide and see what happens. That's, that's kind of who's going to win this here. And it doesn't come across uh, as altogether too crafty of a plan, does it? She, she heard that Isaac was going to bless Esau, and so she tells Jacob to do these things. Uh, we're on verses 11 through 13 here. Uh, Jacob notices that this isn't, isn't necessarily a good plan. 
And notice, he is questioning it, but it isn't that his reasoning isn't, oh, mother, we can't deceive for that is sinful. What is his reasoning? We're going to get caught. We're going to get caught. I look nothing. I feel nothing. I sound nothing like Esau. And this goes back to how I started out this morning in talking about rooting for the underdog. We should naturally feel a desire to root for Jacob here. We should feel, oh, he's the child of the promise. He should be getting this blessing. We should feel that. But Jacob takes any goodwill that we would have towards him and just throws it out the window. He squanders it all. And this is really kind of a crazy story, isn't it? Because we have four main characters, and not one of them is a sympathetic character. And this goes back to what, I, what I've said when we looked at the lives of Esau and Jacob a few weeks back. We aren't sure who to root for in these stories. But there's a main character that we're meant to be rooting for here. Our desire is to look at who that main character is. And that main character in the story is God. Our concern is, are his purposes going to be accomplished? Is the covenant line that is eventually going to lead to the Messiah, is that going to come to pass or not? We want to see the purposes of God to be achieved. And that's one thing that is missing. Well, there's more than one thing missing in their lives, but that's one of the main things missing in the lives of Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. They don't seem to care at all about whether or not God will do his goodwill. They don't trust the providence of God at all, do they? Isaac doesn't believe that God's decision to bless Jacob is best. Rebekah doesn't trust that the will of God will be done despite Isaac's actions. Esau doesn't seem to care about any of it at all. And it's exemplified in the fact that he went outside the line of the promise to find a wife. And then we have Jacob. He cons his brother out of his birthright, and now he's going along with this scheme. Is anybody trusting the providence of God in this story? No. They don't care. The people of God are a mess. Makes you feel kind of good, doesn't it? It's almost as if God is showing us the need for mercy, the need for grace, even by his chosen people. So we come back to the story as we look at verses 14 through 17, and we see Rebecca's plan. We have full-on duplicity going on here. She has Jacob not only take in the delicious food, but there's a costume party, and Jacob's the only one invited, right? He's got everything on. She gets Jacob to look, to feel like Esau, and then we see in verses 18 through 25 how they set out to accomplish their plan. But Isaac isn't so easily duped, as well he shouldn't be easily duped. You have to wonder what's going through Isaac's mind here. None of this adds up. He sounds like Jacob, but he said he was Esau. There's no way he could have come back with a wild game that quickly. And imagine Jacob, how he feels. You, you've all tried to deceive your parents at some point. Imagine what that felt like in, in Jacob's gut while he's trying to pull this one off, right? What, what a ruse. And you've got to wonder, if, if, you know, is he going to believe me? And then it really goes south. It really goes south because Isaac starts asking questions. And look who Jacob pulls into it. He says, the Lord caused me to find this game. He pulls God's name into it. And just so you know, 
This is a textbook, textbook example of taking the Lord's name in vain. This is a violation of the third commandment. Because taking the Lord's name in vain is not just using God's name as a curse word. It is misusing God's name. It is uh, ascribing to God something that he did not do. This is, a, this is exactly what the third commandment is talking about. He's misusing the Lord's name. He's invoking the name of God needlessly and frivolously and to deceive of all things. And so with that, the underdog character, I ain't got no sympathy for him at all. He's, I'm done with him. He's even more unlikable. I don't think any of us are going to stand up and applaud at the end of the story when Jacob gets the blessing. What's going on here? This whole situation stinks worse than the goats that were used to make the meal for Isaac. And speaking of one of the five senses, let's look at what Moses does here. Um, Maya, if you could pull up verses 21 through 27. You can, oh, it's locked up? I even went through all the effort of, of bolding and highlighting specific words of the sentences. So I'll do my best to do it uh, up here. So, all right. So, if we look at this, we, we have the five senses involved. Isaac hears Jacob's voice, and then he feels the skin on Jacob's skin. He tastes the food. He smells the scent of Esau on the clothes that Jacob is wearing. Okay, so we've got that. And then the only reason this deception is possible is because that Isaac's sight is failing him. So all five senses are here in the story. Hasn't Moses brilliantly crafted this tale? We can bring ourselves into the story. We can imagine what Esau smells like. We can taste the food. We can imagine having our vision blurred and not being able to tell. And we can, we can say, that's not, that's, not Isaac, that's not Esau's voice. We're, we're brought into the story. But we can also understand how we get to this part of the story. And Isaac gets in close and he smells his son. He tastes his food and he smells it. That's when he knows it's him, but it isn't. And so Isaac has been fully deceived. He got what he wanted. He got the food. That's what he was after. He wanted his belly filled. Now Isaac was the child of the promise. He was faithful to God, but he also wants the things of the world like you and I do. He wanted his belly filled. And so he has been fully deceived He's been fully deceived. And so we find that this blessing is happening. And we can see that there's three elements to this blessing. He starts off by, by talking about material blessings. He says, he asks God for, uh, for God to bless the one who he's giving the blessing to with the dew of heaven and the plenty that comes from a good harvest. Those are the material blessings. He's saying, may God bless you in this way. And then he asks for a political blessing. He says, let people serve him and, and nations bow down to him. But notice it isn't just other people, groups, and nations. He says, may your own brothers bow down before you. And then finally, there's a third element to this blessing, and this is, this is the big one. It's the general promise of the covenant that echoes throughout Genesis. And it starts with the blessing to Isaac. He says, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And the idea here is that the blessing is all the benefits that God gives. It's about being the covenant child of the promise, about being of the line to the Messiah. And so 
This means that Jacob has received the covenant blessing. Even though it has been obtained by nefarious means, this is the promise that God promised Rebekah that Jacob would have. It is Jacob's. And it will be his. And as we move forward onto the final part of the passage, we find that this, this is going to cause discord with Esau because this blessing can't be revoked from Jacob and it can't be multiplied to Esau. And we saw that very little time passed in the story as this went down. Esau, who, who actually put in the work to get the food, who actually did something, he gets there and then he asks for the blessing. And, and notice what Isaac's reaction was. He trembles violently. He's angry. He knows he's been deceived and he's not happy. He is one angry dad. But he knows that none of this can be undone. Notice what it says in verse 33. Yes, and he shall be blessed. This blessing is absolute. Even though it was not rightfully obtained, Isaac believes that it is the benefits of the blessing that will be conferred on Jacob, the one who has deceived him. Now this is a really intense story, and there there are so many layers of what's going on. And as I drew out earlier, no one's hands are clean here. There's a sense that everyone, everyone in this story has succumbed to the work of the serpent. If you think about it a little bit, it's almost like the garden is happening again. It wasn't just Eve, it was Adam too. And then when they left the garden, and we'll come back to this, when they left the garden, Cain. Everyone is falling for the, for the schemes of the serpent. So what is going on here? This blessing has been obtained through deception. And now the sibling rivalry is going on. What's happening? We're asking the question, will Esau kill Jacob? Will the covenant promise stop? It feels like Cain and Abel again. We, we, we saw that Eve thought that Cain was going to be the one on whom the covenant promise rest. But it was Abel, and Cain killed him. Will that happen again? There's this family tension again. And we know that he despised his birthright earlier. But you can't help but have your heart break a little bit for Esau because he cries out. All he wants is the blessing of his father. And he, he calls out the truth that Jacob is a deceiver. And he, he doesn't deserve the blessing. But Isaac won't budge. He tells Esau that Jacob is going to rule over you. And, and Esau cries out and weeps. Like I said, you have to feel for the guy. We don't understand it. But this was a big deal in the ancient world. And it's been ripped out from under him. And so we see Isaac answering with another prophetic word. Unlike Jacob, the material blessings are going to come hard for Esau. He's going to be at war all the time, even with his brothers. Nothing good is going to happen for Esau. And so we finish up the story here, and it starts to turn. Jacob is being sent away because we're worried that the covenant line will end with the death of Jacob when Esau kills him. And there's, there's another tension here. The story is it's masterfully told because it's, it's moving us to the next part of the story. Jacob is the child of the promise. And Esau has aligned himself with the children of the serpent by wanting to kill Jacob. So will Esau destroy his brother and thwart the purposes of God? Like I said before, will Cain once again kill Abel? Will God intervene? How will the promise come to pass? And then, then there's, 
Jacob's end of it. Will he do what Esau did? Will he seek a woman among the Canaanites for his wife? Or will he go after the children of the promise? And so the chapter ends in kind of a harsh way. Rebecca says, my life is miserable because of these Hittite women. Hopefully none of you say that about your daughter-in-laws. But you can understand, you can understand the tension here in the story. The, The story is turning. Will Jacob find a wife from among their people, or will he abandon the will of God and go after a Canaanite woman? Will the, will the line for the child of the promise stay intact, or will the children of the serpent overcome? Will the serpent prevail, or will God protect the covenant promise despite the best efforts of his people to mess it all up? As, I, as, you, as you know, you know the answer to this. You know the answer to this. We know where Jacob gets his wife from, but I want to challenge you to let that, let that tension sit there a little bit as you think about the text going forward. In a couple weeks, when I get back from vacation, we're, we're going to look at Jacob looking to find a wife, and that's an important part of the story. But if we think about this, will the covenant promise come to pass? Will that happen? Well, we know it will. Will the ultimate purpose of God happen? Because the purpose here in this story is not that somebody will find a wife or that somebody has a bigger bank account. The purpose of the story here is that God is working to rescue his people from sin, death, hell, and the devil. That's the big story. Will the seed of the woman triumph? Will Jesus come and crush the head of the serpent? And we know he does. But we have to be thinking about that that idea in the story. Are the purposes of God going to come to pass? And so with that story turning to the life of Jacob, as we sort of leave Isaac behind here, we're going to take one more thing here out of the life of Isaac to apply to our lives this week. And I think there's one thing, one thing that comes out of this story that is so applicable for us. And that point, the thing that we can take into the world this week is trust the providence of God. And oh, that's a hard one. If we're, if we're honest We all struggle with doing this because it is so hard. Like Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob, we want to take things into our own hands. We want to be in control, and we often want to do it by any means necessary. And one of the most difficult things we can do is pray, Thy will be done, and actually mean it. That's the hard part. And even if we are able to humbly pray that prayer. It's even more difficult to live that out. And we see in this story that while God's purposes were still accomplished, despite human meddling, it creates substantial problems. Enemies are created. Resentment is amplified. Things happen when we don't trust the sovereignty and the providence of God. So how do we trust in God's providence? How do we believe that he is sovereign? Well, for us, that means that we spend time in the Word and in prayer. The purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to our will, but to subject our wills to His. In prayer, we ultimately acknowledge that God is the one in control. And while things may be difficult to accept, we trust that He is the one who is in control. And so may we today begin to trust in the providence and sovereignty of God when, in just a few moments... We actually pray, thy will be done. Let's mean that 
As we've journeyed through the book of Genesis, we have seen that God is at work in his creation to bring his people to himself. And while things have been difficult for the people of God, he is at work for their good and for his glory despite the circumstances, despite how they try to mess it up. So may we depart from here today trusting that this truth is still active for the people of God today. Because in Christ, we have received mercy. In Christ, the wrath of God for our sin and rebellion has been paid. And so we know that through faith, God saved us and is at work in us to accomplish his will. And so may his will be done. And may we humbly trust him and his sovereign and providential rule on our lives. Amen.